Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the morning of Monday, the 7th of March, 2022, and I'm joined here in Seoul around the NK News Podcast table, joined by three members of the NK News team, James Fretwell, Jongmin Kim, and NK News and NK Pro founder and CEO, Chad O'Carroll. We're here to discuss some of the latest news out of and around North Korea. Before we get started, please let me remind you to leave a review about this podcast. You can leave reviews on Spotify. We've had a few questions about that, so the answer is most definitely yes. It is possible to leave reviews uh, about both the individual episode and the series on Spotify. Uh, And why that's so important is that we can have new people discover our podcast more easily and raise our audience figures. Secondly, go to nknews.org, check it out, consider buying a subscription. It's uh, less than the cost of a cup of coffee a day if you buy an annual subscription, and that helps to fund the most excellent journalism that my great colleagues here and those in the other room put out each and every day, even on weekends. Thirdly, follow us all on Twitter. You'll find NK News at nknews.org, so that's easy. And the rest of us you can find referenced in the show notes or the tweet post for this episode. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email us at podcast at nknews.org. Anyway, welcome back on the podcast, James, Chad, and Jongmin. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Well, the big thing that's happened since we last spoke on the podcast is that there is now a major land war uh, broken out with Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So it's time to discuss what that all means for the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Chad, I know that you've been following South Korea's take on the war very closely. Uh, You wrote a piece last week entitled How North Korea Played into South Korea's Slow-Motion Condemnation of Russia, and you've also tweeted a bit about that. So can you outline for us what is the South Korean stance, how has it moved slowly, and how North Korea figures into all this? Yeah, so originally um, when conflict was brewing, tensions were brewing, the South Korean government was uh, kind of basically hedging and and trying not to put its neck out too much in terms of condemning Russia. And when conflict did start a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, the South Korean government didn't initially want to call it an invasion. And there was, I think, some apprehension about condemning Russia for for its actions. Uh, That slowly changed and South Korea did indeed begin calling it an invasion. And uh, Chong Day also did condemn Moscow eventually, but there was a bit of a time lag. The other thing that happened was we saw very quickly the international community, uh, specifically the United States and the EU, taking a lead with uh, sanctions, unilateral sanctions, multilateral sanctions from their uh, uh, various capitals. And we saw that mirrored by uh, capitals such as Tokyo, uh, Taiwan, even uh, Australia. And there was some noticeable hesitation and delay on the South Korean side. Victor Char on Twitter was, was really quite strident in pointing this out, that South Korea appeared to be hedging when the rest of liberal democracies in the Asian area, Oceania, were taking much more strident steps. And so South Korea gov- government kept on saying it's going to join international sanctions. But if you, if you know a bit about sanctions, you know that 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 doesn't really mean anything. If the United States issues sanctions, controls on technology or um, commodities, if financial sanctions are issued by the European Union, Seoul doesn't really get a say in whether or not its companies, its chable, implement those sanctions. Its companies will have compliance officers whose job it is to avoid being banned from the United States financial system and the European Union. 
and they would they would implement those sanctions as a precaution so again it felt like south korea wasn't doing very much and then eventually they did announce last week that they were going to basically put uh, on their books uh, some of the export controls to russia but if you look closely they're just mirroring the united states now i should point out that that, that places like japan taiwan australia have actually issued their own sanctions in addition to uh, of course their companies complying with european union and united states so you know just zooming out the reason we we're talking about this the, the north korea hook is of course south korea was invaded by north korea yeah. um in 1950 that's right and it was thanks to a very quick condemnation of that invasion by the united states security united nations security council that led to the uh you know the the multinational action that saved right. south korea and countries from far-flung places in the world jumped to South Korea's defense and help. So people look at South Korea's response today and, and, and wonder why it's been a bit delayed, why they've been hedging so much mm. it, it on the surface. And, uh, you know, one di- diplomatic source I spoke to was um, very disappointed. I mean, you, you won't hear them say that officially, of course, mm. but uh, I think there was a bit of an- anxiety and disappointment from uh, some Western nations. So why would that be? What's the incentive for South Korea to hedge? Well, um, you know, I spoke to uh, several experts last week and um, actually North Korea came up as Mm. a recurring theme. Um, Of course, Russia does have an important role to play in the six-party talks. Which haven't happened for a long time. For a long time. More than 10 years now, isn't it? But, you know, China, (laughs) China just a few months ago was calling for them to restart. Russia has also played a significant role with um, plans for uh, Russia, DPRK, ROK, trilateral cooperation, gas pipeline, um, deliveries of of coal, things like that. I I think South Korea thinks still that Russia will play some kind of role in Mm. any final uh, resolution of the North Korea issue. Of course, there are United States, uh, United Nations Security Council member as well. Uh, So, um, yeah, clearly an important stakeholder on the surface on on DPRK issues. And I think that the South Koreans wanted to avoid rocking the boat too much. And then there may have been some substance to that because the Russian ambassador last week to South Korea Mm. Um, he did actually uh, condemn Seoul for taking actions against Moscow and, and, and it sort of uh, suggested that Russian cooperation in the future uh, on these uh, trilateral projects and supporting on North Korea might, may not be forthcoming. I'm actually, I mean, uh, just thinking out loud here, uh, there may be a silver lining to South Korea not having a, a, a gas pipeline from Russia. We all see... Uh, that an over-dependence on Russian gas imports uh, can lead to problems later on down the track, aren't they? Exactly. I was just going to add, I thought, an an interesting footnote while Chad was drawing the historical parallels. Of course, South Korea um, was the victim of a a North Korean invasion saved by a strong international response. Mm. South Korean President Moon Jae-in had a big opportunity to uh, condemn Russia, or at least mention the issue in some way um, on one of the main events of the South Korean calendar, the um, anniversary of the March, the the 1919 March, the first uh, independence movement. Now, of course, that's marking uh, a uh, Japanese uh, opposition against Japanese occupation of Korea. And of course, it's going to focus on 
uh, deeply rooted historical tensions with Japan that are still relevant today. But Moon often uh, touches on other issues, including North Korea, which wasn't really mentioned as much this time around as in other years. Um, so you might think, well, maybe Moon would just focus on Korean issues or relations with Japan. But he did mention some other, lightly touch on other international issues. And I think some people were expecting him to, to mention the Ukraine issue. Mm. Um, and the Ukrainian uh, Obviously ambassador... Obviously a clear parallel there. You've got a, uh, a country that wants to be independent that's... Uh attacked by a much larger, much stronger neighbor. Exactly, yeah. And that's exactly the parallel. The, um, you, the ambassador uh, designates, I believe, to uh, South Korea, the Ukrainian ambassador designates, uh, drew on Twitter, I thought, you know, that, that was an opportunity for Moon to draw that parallel. And um, he didn't. So really, no mention at all in the, uh, in the, in the speech? Oh, Chongmin, yeah, you've got your hand right. up. There was no direct mention, but mm -hmm. there was a passing reference to the spirit of the March 1st movement, which made people think about the Ukraine situation. He ah. didn't mention Ukraine directly, but he said that the new Cold War is about, it seems like it's starting. Ah. And he said that a lot of countries are starting to seek supremacy through power more and more, which is a reference to the current situation, I believe. That does sound like a clear allusion. Yes. And he talked about how in South Korean veins, the, the spirit of the March 1st independent movement flows where we rejected the hegemonic international order, resisting violence, mm -hmm. injustice, and discrimination. So these were all a value-driven allusions to mm -hmm. the, the issue, but he did not mention Ukraine directly, like James. You agreeing with that, James? I would say so. I think it generally fits into, uh, under South Korea, the Moon Jae-in administration has wanted to kind of, you know, we, even we, if we look at uh, China and US relations, it wants the strong military alliance with the US, but is quite uh, reluctant sometimes to be too on the side of the US when it comes to China mm -hmm. because of trade economic relations. So I think there's a bit of a reflection in that South Korea kind of wants to be best friends with everybody. And in the emerging Cold War II, that might not be possible. Yes, the Cold War 2.0. Uh, as well as the uh, the gas pipeline that, uh, that Chad mentioned, which would be uh, 1,200 kilometers long uh, through North Korea into South Korea, if it does eventually go ahead. I mean, it's certainly been on, talked about for many years. Also, the uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway extended southward through uh, North Korea into South Korea. That's been uh, a dream for at least two decades, right? The idea of being able to catch a train from Busan to Paris. I mean, of course, you can you can go on to London, but that doesn't alliterate as nicely. So Busan to Paris sounds fine. Uh, but that that's obviously uh, something that if South Korea is afraid of Russia's uh, reaction, then the, the Trans-Siberian Railway is one of those things on the on the table too, right, Chad? Yeah, but whether or not the Europeans will be letting any trains in from Russia well, exactly. or Russians allowing any trains to Europe, <laughs> I yeah, doubt you, that very you, you much. may only be able to take a, uh, a train from Paris to St. Petersburg. Busan to Pyongyang, I think, would be the extent <laughs> of the route. Yes. Now, I understand that the, uh, the Ukrainian embassy here in South Korea did actually make a request to the South Korean government for weapons, for arms and, and armaments and, and armor, but was turned down. Anyone got anything on that? Just me that saw that. I, I saw in the, uh, on the television the other day that they had asked, and the South Korean government said, no, but we'll give you some non-lethal stuff uh, instead. So um, uh, I don't know if that means like uh, maybe helmets or other logistical supplies, uh, blankets and that, or tents, that kind of thing. But I was reminded then, because uh, we're talking about historical parallels, I was reminded of uh, after World War I, 
there were, I think, Czechoslovaks who gave a large bunch of, uh, or sold a large bunch of uh, weapons to uh, Korean independence fighters in the far east of, uh, of the Soviet Union. Huh, yeah. Well, I mean, South Korea, like, uh, historically, last few decades, it doesn't really get involved in military confrontations mm. overseas. It, it uh, usually plays, uh, if anything, it will be a humanitarian role. Well, it did um, have troops in Afghanistan. They and weren't, Iraq. weren't they weren't they specifically on humanitarian related missions though? They weren't like in combat, as far as I recall. They were. That, that may be the case, but they were sent with weapons in case they were fired upon. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and and then the, uh, the the Somali pirates had um, armed ships there, as I recall, from the navy. Yeah, on the policing operations at the yeah, Gulf of Aden. Yeah, but. Um, for, yeah, I, I've, I've been told by some military sources uh, that one of the reasons there's um, a bit of uh, apprehension about South Korea uh, with some of its uh, intentions surrounding operational control oh. is that it's never, it's never really led any military ad- adventures anywhere um, besides the peninsula. Hmm. And uh, it doesn't ever really play a military role, even when there are other countries um, in the hmm. region doing so. And uh, yeah, I, I, I can understand it to an extent. But, you know, just on the total flip side, um, one country with a massive army, North Korea, hmm. um, they have uh, been a mercenary force in many parts of the world. They're Zimbabwe. involved in Syria. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe if the Ukrainians could get the right fee together, there'd be a... Mm. A very formidable force that could <laughs> take on the Russians. Actually, I'll come back to the North Korean military in a second. I want to ask, uh, John Wynn, have you seen any writings or, or, or talk in South Korean media of, uh, of South Korean either politicians or commentators specifically drawing out these, uh, these parallels between Korea's history and what's happening in Ukraine? Oh, there were a handful. Uh, because these big issues going on internationally, they tend to draw public attention in South Korea. Mm. And because election is only a few days ahead, Mm. it was actually a very useful occasion for the presidential candidates to apply this situation to their own defense and international relations pledges. So they did mention Ukraine quite Mm. a bit, but they got criticized, most of them. For... Just, just briefly, uh, the progressive Democratic Party candidate Lee Jae-myung initially said something about how the Ukraine crisis, quote-unquote, despite something that's happening from the other side of the globe, it's affecting the South Korean stock prices. And mm. people thought this was insensitive because mm. people are dying and he's talking about stocks. So Yoon Seok-yeol, the People Party conservative presidential candidate criticized this at first and started uh, condemning Russia and Lee Jae-myung also condemned Russia, both mm-hmm. of them. But uh, the main thing that Lee Jae-myung got criticized for is because during the one of the debates, Lee Jae-myung said, um, this is what happens when a, a novice, a newbie politician mm-hmm. becomes a president and leads the international relations and diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And he was making uh, he was criticizing Yoon Seok-yeol because he is a new politician, yeah. but people it was very obvious that he was also referring to uh, President Zelensky as mm. well. So he got criticized, interestingly, on Reddit, the international, um, right. what, what Yoon Seok-yeol called an international online community. And Yoon Seok-yeol cited Reddit itself in his official statement saying that the international community is furious about Lee's comment and Yoon Seok-yeol was criticizing it. And then from Yoon Seok-yeol's side, he was criticized by saying... Uh, 
uh, by, by making a lot of arguments, um, drawing parallels between Ukraine and the Korean Peninsula, saying that it, it was Ukraine's mistake at mm. first giving up news and disarming itself without credible alliance partners and signing the memorandum without um, building military force and so on and so forth. And he was using this to criticize the incumbent Moon administration as well as the progressive candidate about the end of war declaration, saying that an ink and a piece of paper does not help build uh, the, the security for the country. So he was making... Right, remind us, who said that? That's Yoon, is it? That was Yoon. Mm. So both of them were using the Ukraine situation to uh, to as, as, as like a ground for, for saying that their pledge is better and that um, that they are a better candidate for presidency, mm-hmm. but um, it did not bode well, both of them. I mean, ultimately, as disappointing as that sounds, I think that's something that uh, globally, at, in all times and all places, you can always trust politicians and local media to draw some local angle of the story and bring that out, right? I mean, I, I remember uh, even growing up in Australia that uh, when there was a uh, some overseas tragedy, you know, a, an earthquake in in Nicaragua or a plane went down somewhere, then they'd always mention in the story that uh, and five Australians were on board uh, and, and went down with the plane or there were, you know, uh, a handful of Australians are believed to be missing right now. That it, it, and it sounds insensitive in, in comparison to the much larger number of locals who are dead, but, I mean, that's what the local media are there for, to bring out the local element of the story, aren't they? Well, another local angle to this, though, with Yoon's comments where it was down to uh, Ukraine trusting in pieces of paper and mm. and uh, also on, on disarming. Well, what, what kind of message does that send Pyongyang? Yeah, well. um, who Yoon Suk-yeol in future will be trying to persuade to do exactly what the Ukrainians did. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> that led Give to up your nukes, the invasion, trust this piece of his, paper. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that will go down well uh, if he does become president in terms of North Korea denuclearization efforts. But, you know, just to zoom out a bit, I, I really do feel like this uh, conflict is... It's got to be, if, if there was even one iota of uh, hope left that North Korea would denuclearize, I mean, this has to be the final nail in the coffin. I really cannot see how Kim Jong-un could look at this and think in any way it would ever be safe to denuclearize. And, and to be frank, I think the whole nuclear non-proliferation treaty is going to be really tested by this. Mm. Um, and we're going to probably see increasing calls from countries, including South Korea, to, to nuke up in future. Yeah, and we, and we also saw recently, very recently, uh, after the invasion began, uh, former Japanese President, uh, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, uh, speaking quite publicly, uh, I think in an in- was an international forum anyway, publicly definitely saying that uh, the US should share its nuclear weapons and maybe even station some in Japan. That was uh, unheard of, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal, yeah. It's a good segue to ask, uh, how has North Korea reported what's been happening in Ukraine? Um, I gather that there were three statements that I consider as attributed, a, a pre, we can attribute as official stance of North Korea. The first one was uh, quite toned down, uh, attributed to a researcher named Yu Ji Song under Foreign Ministries uh, Research Center. And the, the, the person said that at the time, you referred to the United States as a root cause of the Ukraine crisis. And then the foreign ministry spokesperson followed up a few days afterwards. But the format was not spokesperson statement, but a bit of a more toned down spokesperson answer to KCNA uh, state media reporter. Uh, but um, it was, I think, the highest level at the time. Uh, the, the foreign ministry spokesperson said that the United States and the West have, quote unquote, systematically undermined European security 
by pursuing NATO expansion despite Russia's um, uh, demands and concerns about their security. So they are basically um, echoing China's, China and Russia's stance on why this happened. But uh, North Korea is using this occasion to uh, criticize United States instead for uh, brewing all this crisis by backing up NATO expansion. Afterwards, um, there was this special session, uh, emergency session at the United Nations, uh, where uh, China abstained the resolution and then the uh, North Korea actually vetoed against the resolution. Right. Uh, there were, I think, five vetoes? In five, all? yes. And, and that included North Korea and, and Cuba. Right. Um, 35 abstained. Eritrea. And, mm-hmm. Some of those countries. Belarus. Belarus. Well, of course, Belarus, yes. Mm-hmm. But then uh, UN- United Nations... North Korea's ambassador to UN Kim Song was there in person on, I believe, the second day of this of the session, and took the podium and basically reiterated what the MFA spokesperson already said. Mm. But uh, the the point was that um, United States is hypocritical for talking about territorial integrity of Ukraine when mm. they themselves were devastating Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan in the past, and this was. Uh, North Korea's um, uh, opportunity to, yeah. to criticize that, saying that they are showing the double-sidedness of these Western countries. Now, it's not often that the uh, the North Korean ambassador to the United Nations actually stands up and make a speech, is it? Not unseen, but mm-hmm. but um, but this was a general assembly. So. Right. It's just interesting that that he that they the North Korea thought this is the chance. Let's go and talk about this rather than simply sit there and vote. Right. That they actually took the mic and said, I, "I'd that's, like to say some words." That's why I thought that it's their opportunity to make even a stronger case uh, about how disarming oneself is like very dangerous and so on and so forth. But mm. uh, my uh, my impression from the the February twenty fourth when the invasion happened until now is that they hedged a little bit because they did not it was their opportunity to criticize the U S right away mm-hmm. but for the first week they were hedging by showing these individual article and a spokesperson toned down response to the press and then the United uh, the ambassador to the United Nations also did not come up with new talking points, but he was repeating the MFA spokesperson one. Mm. So they were hedging a little bit for yeah. some reason, but they at least voted against the resolution on like China abstaining. Because you would you would expect the North Koreans to immediately say, "See, this is what happens when you give up nuclear weapons." Exactly. This is why we. But they they didn't. That's interesting. They, that they've yeah, chosen they not to make that the center point of of, of their speech. So, so they were alluding to it, but mm. but they. What I'm saying is that the, the approach was slow and toned down. Yeah, oh, interesting. So both Koreas somewhat was right, a slow Koreas response. Both Koreas have been slow to respond. Yeah. Uh, now I understand we also had an exclusive interview here at NK News with uh, Seoul's former ambassador to Ukraine. Right, Ambassador Yanggu. He retired uh, very recently, and he actually spent ten years in Russia mm. and three years in Ukraine. So he. Um, he's in love with both communities, and um, he said that it was very devastating to see it. He framed it as a war between brothers, mm-hmm. and he although he said that although I really love Russia, um, Putin is not making a right decision. And um, but then it was interesting because as a former ambassador, um, he brought up this interesting argument where he said that after 
seeing the Ukraine war and North Korea was never going to denuclearize anyways. But looking at this, it will, like Chad said, it's a nail in the coffin. Mm. So what South Korea should do is just look at this um, realistically and come up with the idea of nuke-to-nuke deterrence because North Korea is not going to give it up and it's going to block negotiation and any sort of inter-Korean cooperation. So he's saying that South Korea should be on the same level. So he's now one of those in that camp of people who say South Korea should have nukes again like they did up until about 91 caveated as saying U.S. extended deterrence, but okay. it's interesting because he is not against, in, against inter-Korean cooperation. He's saying mm. that in order to go forward with inter-Korean cooperation, any sort of it, like economic cooperation, he's saying that South Korea should be on the same ground. Right. Well, it's a, it, I guess it's a variant of uh, speak softly and carry a big stick, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any, any idea that uh, North Korean materiel or personnel are involved in this war as they were uh, in Syria and other conflicts, for example? No, uh, n- nothing we've seen so far. The only uh, uh, yeah, couple of vague connections. Number one is there were, uh, as I'm sure, James, you're probably familiar with, uh, unite, um, in, from prior, prior United Nations panel of experts reports, uh, there was a previous connection with North Korean uh, diplomats, I believe, who had uh, got into a bit of a pickle in Ukraine for um, trying to acquire missile uh, mm. designs and, and technologies. That was some years ago. Um, do, you, do you remember any of the details on that? So, yes, two, I'm not sure what year it was that the panel of experts mentioned this, but I, th- I believe it was two North Koreans were um, caught trying to get um, designs for right. missiles. Um, and, but the connection, I mean, this is just the stuff that we know about, though, right? Yeah. And I was, as I was looking into this, the, there was a fantastic article written on the, um, the uh, by time on the... Um, connections between North Korean uh, missile engineers and Ukraine. And um, the, the journalist said that they got into one of these, uh, you know, post-Soviet missile factories in Ukraine, I think just through climbing over the wall or kind of pushing through a door. So this, this really uh, emphasizes how much uh, opportunity, uh, so to speak, there was to get all these missile designs after the fall of the Soviet Union. and. Uh, it seems that uh, North Korea has used the uh, engine design for, uh, from one of, um, you know, former Soviet missile for its intermediate and um, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, just one other thing is that um, North Korea has uh, two Antonov AN-148 jets. Um, which it acquired, I think, in 2013. Now, Antonov is a, a Ukraine-based aircraft manufacturer. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they, they, I find they, there could be technical implications for North Korea in future um, from this because spare parts would mm. need to come from Antonov. And the UN does have a sanctions waiver for spare parts sales. Uh-huh. Uh, but, if, of course, if Antonov is no more, then that could complicate North Korea's ability to... Right. Why these parts? And I did find it a bit rich that North Korea was condemning Ukraine so much when Kim Jong-un himself um, actually piloted one of these Antonov AN-148 aircraft several years ago. There's a great video of him uh, allegedly landing it hmm. um, in Pyongyang airport, but presumably the co-pilot was doing some assistance there. But mm. um, yeah, while he's willing to land their planes, uh, North Korea wants to condemn uh, Ukraine. So, Gosh. 
Now, uh, James, you wrote an analysis piece back on uh, February 25th for NK Pro called North Korea-Ukraine Relations, Why the DPRK Stands to Support Russia's Invasion. Would you uh, briefly summarize your argument for us? Sure. I mean, we've just been talking about how North Korea might be a be seen as being a little bit hypocritical by, um, mm. you know, uh, standing with Russia on its invasion with Ukraine, especially since North Korea is always this advocate for respecting yeah. sovereignty and criticizing big powers, attacking smaller powers. And uh, I see this basically North Korea's support. I mean, there's no um, direct security link to to North Korea in the Ukraine situation, so to speak. Um, and I think it's just supporting Russia, really, because uh, along with China, it has very few friends mm. in the international community. Russia and China have been supporting uh, sanctions relief for North Korea at the UN. North Korean workers are still illegally in Russia. Mm. So it really needs Russian support. Um, and I think that if it didn't support Russia, that could uh, worsen ties. And purely from a, uh, a selfish perspective, um, that was the conclusion that they, uh, that they came up with. Now, is there anything that you would uh, update on that story or change now, uh, 10 days on? Uh, just that um, before the invasion, they, North Korea was referring to, uh, I think, the, the theory or the rumor uh, of, a, of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, of course, <laughs> they can't say that anymore. No. Um, but they've, they've still come out in support of, of Russia's actions. So I don't think much has changed in that respect. Um, but I think behind closed doors, as, you know, as, as Chad and Jongmin were saying, final nail in the coffin, mm. maybe it's uh, another nail after many final nails in, in the coffin. Uh, right. But yeah, Kim Jong-un sitting in Pyongyang, he can't help but look at this and say, you know, you, the, the great powers sign these deals like the, like the Budapest Memorandum in, yeah. in, in 94, promising security assurances to respect the sovereignty mm. of Ukraine, etc., etc., etc. And then many years down the line, well, you know, uh, when it comes down to it, it didn't stop Ukraine from, from being invaded from Russia. And I think uh, Kim Jong-un is probably thinking, well, if, if I sign a similar denuclearization deal and I'm promised so-called uh, security assurances, uh, at the end of the day, how does that secure my security more than if I just keep a hold of nuclear weapons? Yeah, Chad, do you think that this uh, that North Korea will be watching this uh, invasion of Ukraine by Putin's Russia very closely and taking some lessons from it? Yeah, 100%. I think uh, obviously that, like James said, they'll be taking a big uh, hint as to uh, their own potential future disarmament deals with, with the West. Um, but I, I also have been thinking about the, the opposite. Um, you know, there are some commentators who say that North Korea's goal is to unify the Korean Peninsula under a North Korean flag. And there are different explanations for how they do that. Some suggest that it would be a very softly, softly process that would chip away at South Korean democracy uh, over a several decades long span. There are some who do say that um, North Korea may seek to one day just simply invade South Korea in the same way that Russia has done with Ukraine. 
And I think this, the way that the Ukraine situation is playing out and the way that the Russians are getting bogged down, I think is a real wake up call for if there are people in the, in the North Korean government that think this could be possible, it's a wake up call for just how difficult it would be for um, a, a regime like Pyongyang um, to take over a country yeah. that is used to freedom and democracy and yeah. has widespread internet access and, and is connected to the international community. I mean, it, right. it would be, I've always said this in, in like online conversations and debates and stuff when, when people suggest that Pyongyang would try yeah. and do this, that it would be such a risk to try and to take over a country like yep. South Korea. And if you had... Let's say the Korean workers, the, the Korean People's Army, were successful, and there were tanks on every corner of Seoul. How do you prevent uh, the South Koreans from picking up guns like they're doing in Ukraine, yeah. and really fighting for for what their their country stands for? Um, and how do you expect to subdue that um, that uh, you know information awareness and and curiosity that we all have here as as a privilege of living in an open democracy? I, I think it's impossible for any military power to do that, and I think that that. Yeah, the North Koreans will be watching closely how this goes. That, that's right. Well, uh, I'd, I'd like to, to agree with that. Um, I've certainly heard it said a number of times in the last week or two that 140,000 soldiers cannot control a country of more than 40 million people uh, in the long run. Uh, but that's also pos possibly because one of um, uh, it, possibly because the final goal of Putin is not to seize and control all of Ukrainian territory forever, but rather to break it, take the parts that he wants, and then sort of say, now I'll leave the mess for you to clean up. Whereas if North Korea ever did seek to uh, invade or do something with South Korea, whether it's through uh, threats, intimidation, blackmail tactics, the goal there would be actual full control rather than to go and break South Korea and then retreat back to North Korea. That would So that that's a, a very different uh, final outcome that we'd be looking at in the two situations, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just I just feel like this really um, underscores w how hard it would, how impossible yes. it would be for North Korea to ever expect to rule, take military control and to rule. And I, I, I think, you know, the Russian probable inability, let's touch wood, to use nuclear weapons in this conflict um, will also uh, demonstrate to North Korea how um, futile that capability is on in in. in in a country with such a lack of strategic depth that that's right on North Korea's doorstep. Would there be a big difference between, uh, you, you mentioned uh, using nuclear weapons in this conflict, between Russia using, say, tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons and using larger or strategical nuclear weapons? Well, uh, I, I mean, I heard a great podcast yesterday um, where Lawrence Friedman, who's a professor of war studies at King's College London, was asked by a BBC, uh, sorry, Financial Times journalist to explain what's the difference between tactical and mm. strategic nuclear weapons. He pointed out that most people just look at them as nuclear weapons, right? right. Um, yes, the yield can, can be of a different scale, but fundamentally they're going to do a lot of damage. There's going to be a lot of radiation, a lot of um, second order effects. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, China's obviously uh, a big part of this picture as well. And uh, Xi Jinping has. Um, you know, had that that uh, famously had a meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin just before the Beijing Winter Olympics began. It seems like they're on board with this, despite the many years of of China saying, uh, you know, we don't interfere in, um, and we don't like other people interfering in other countries' uh, domestic affairs. It was, what what's China sort of taking away from all this, and what position does it put China in in relation to uh, North Korea? Anyone? Um, I mean, I think that. The Chinese position is going to be really tested that, you know, they're trying to uh, talk up the usual respect of sovereignty and uh, 
need for restraint on all sides, which they call for in all conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, but they clearly don't mean it with regards to Russia. Um, I think, I mean, they'll be watching this very closely, of course, with regards to Taiwan, how, how uh, the world responds with this Russian aggression, yeah. what that means for any potential future Taiwan incursion. Um, on the North Korea perspective, how how does China's observance of this situation lead to anything different here? Hmm, I don't know the answer to that. I think if if it if it just generally if we look at this in the general Cold War II perspective, are we going to see China and Russia even more reluctant to condemn perhaps North Korean missiles? And recently, North Korea has been testing uh, systems for the reconnaissance satellites. So we, we have to wonder whether if, if and when North Korea actually launches this satellite in mm. the past, uh, Russia and China, that, that's also been the red line. It's been satellite launches, nuclear tests, and uh, long range missile tests. But maybe, maybe this time round, if, if North Korea keeps supporting China and Russia on on anything they do, if, if Russia and China find themselves in the firing line of criticism from the international community, could they be a bit more lenient if, if, if North Korea launches a recon satellite? So we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but I, I think that if we're going to look at this in a, in, uh, through the prism of, a, of an increasingly polarized world where North Korea is firmly fixed uh, on the side of, of China and Russia, this, this could be a possibility. It also begs the question um, if this is Cold War II and um, China and Russia are going to back North Korea on things, North Korea will reciprocate. Does that mean uh, that the possibility of, of any progress between the US and North Korea has decreased uh, even more? I think that's uh, how, how I see uh, this this playing out in the in the wider sense. Well, it does allow me to segue neatly into uh, two uh, launches or two tests done in the last week. Um, can we call them rockets? Can we call them missiles? Uh, Chongwen, what's the South Korean military saying? So the South Korean military initially thought the both of the tests, February late February one and the over the weekend one, as ballistic missile test. Mm -hmm. um, they thought with the latest one, it was they thought they detected it from the Sunan area near Pyongyang, which is where the airport is um, in the morning. And the flight range of the two were also similar. Uh, the, the latest one was 270 kilometers and the one before that was 300 kilometers. And the altitude also similar, 560 kilometers and 620 kilometers. So at first, experts thought that this could be an MRBM, mid uh medium-range ballistic missile, mm -hmm. but it turned out it was a satellite system test. It, they did not test the satellite per se, but they right. tested the system. And the latest one, um, North Korea explained that uh, there, there was no photos, first of all, but the, the first recon satellite system test, they, they showed a photo of Korean Peninsula, uh, some taken from, uh, uh, from a board. From the rocket? Yes, but it's unclear because it's very low resolution. It doesn't seem like satellite imagery. How do they get that? Well, I mean, it could be uh, just a simple camera device mounted on on whatever it was. I mean, they, they've taken photos from Pukguksong to solid fuel ballistic missiles uh -huh. like way back in February 2017. But how does that transmit back to Earth? Presumably radio, um, hmm. or someone's out there collecting the SD card when it splashes down. <laughs> <laughs> Chongmin's got some ideas. So, so they 
kind of explained that it was what they evaluated was was quote unquote data transmission and control command system and ground cell like control system. So it seemed like they were using this image to show that they actually tested the transmission thing, but. Mm. But it's very unclear because first of all, there was no photo with the latest one, and no photo of the um, of the vehicle itself. Uh, and also, the second recon satellite system, when there was no photo, and it was a very, very, very short, no technical details mm. on state media either. Yeah. Well, I mean, if and when they do um, put the satellite into orbit, and it does work in the way that Jongmin just described. Um, one of the the key uh, functions for this could be to help track um, what's called telemetry when North Korean missiles launch. So, if you fire a missile, um, especially on a, a normal trajectory like way into the Pacific over Japan, mm. you either need um, North Korean ship by the splashdown area to to collect data as it's coming in, or you can do that by satellite. And right now, that we believe that's been a big hurdle to North Korea. Almost preventing them from getting any meaningful mm. splashdown warhead reentry data from a, a test that would be on a conventional long-range uh, trajectory way okay. off, like thousands of kilometers into the Pacific Ocean, which we've never seen. Right. So, you know, that would freak a lot of countries out if North Korea was to start doing tests on those trajectories. Mm. But um, a lot of other countries do use those trajectories. So. It may but be not something. often firing them over enemy countries, right? Like North Korea firing something over Japan into the Pacific Ocean, that would always be seen as being provocative, no matter how much you could say it's just a, a technical test. Yeah, the U.S. usually launches them westbound from California, for, from the east uh, west coast of America. Um, I believe the U.K. launches them into the Atlantic Ocean. So, yeah, they, they people usually try and avoid mm. overflight um, because that could obviously cause damage if things go wrong. Now, is there another reason why North Korea is so keen to get a satellite up in Earth orbit? Is it to uh, to spy on South Korea because North Korea is uh, is so vulnerable to other people's satellites, but it doesn't have any good spy satellites of its own? Yeah, I think 100%. You, you want to monitor your, your enemy, which is, I mean, both South Korea and Japan, mm. U.S. forces all around here. And, uh, you know, these commercial companies like Planet, um, Planet Labs, which we use a lot for their satellite imagery, they've changed the game with regards to the technology that's required to, to get uh, meaningful, high quality satellite imagery. It's not, it doesn't require the, the like massive technology investments that, it, that satellite images, satellite technology of, of decades past required. So in other words, it, they could, I think, using almost consumer grade um, technology get something uh, pretty valuable into orbit because mm. of course they're banned from using services like planet and technically even google earth oh. due to sanctions now is it likely that these tests were scheduled before the invasion of ukraine took place or that north korea took advantage of an opportune time to pop off a few rockets while nobody was watching it's difficult to say isn't it because uh in january the invasion of Ukraine wasn't taking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the military buildup was happening, but um, North Korea launched uh, a, a number of missiles during that time. It stopped in February during the Beijing Winter Olympics. So it might be uh, less to do with Ukraine and more to do with um, the Beijing Winter Olympics and paying respects to China by not launching in that period. But uh, having said that, I mean, 
um, launching uh, rockets uh, while the world's attention is on Ukraine. I mean, if you turn on the TV now, there's there's nothing else but Ukraine. Mm. So it does seem to provide North Korea with with that little bit extra uh, window of opportunity to test these systems. I will frame it as just why not um, from North Korea's perspective. It's not like, oh, because there is a crisis in, in the other part of the world, let's do it. Rather than that, I think it's just that they were planning this since January 2021 anyways. Mm-hmm. 20, J- January 2000. Eighth Party Congress. Yes, Eighth Party yeah. Congress. Recon Satellite was already in the list ah. of the uh, of the, the weapons that they wanted to develop anyway. So they had to test it. And why not? Um, because um, they wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. Well, I'd just like to point out that technically the, the Winter Olympics haven't actually finished yet. The Paralympics are still going on in Beijing. And so uh, by, uh, A, by Russia invading Ukraine during that time and B, by uh, North Korea popping off these, uh, these rockets at that time, it is still technically, uh, it, it's a breach of the, uh, the Olympic truce. I mean, Paralympics are also Olympics. Yeah, that is technically true, but the fact that China's two close partners are doing that, I think, says a lot. <laughs> it, it does. It's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, it does say a lot. Uh, now, the day after tomorrow, we have presidential elections here in Korea, the 13th time since democracy was restored in 1987. Uh, Jong-min, a quick comment on how North Korea, uh, how that issue is affecting or not affecting the election. So what I'm going to say, it's not based on poll results. It's just my observation of what happened in the past few months. North Korea issue did not used to be any any importance at start to the voting, mm. to the voters in South Korea. But as time passed by, Yoon started talking about preemptive strike mm. and they started making a parallels to Korean Peninsula with the Ukraine situation. And there were South Korean voters who were increasingly concerned about the security issues. It wasn't a thing at first. But it became one of the major topics as time passed by. And it seems like right now, North Korea issue is one of the things that not not maybe not major, but but one of the things that voters are, are definitely thinking about. And they have a very widely different approach towards denuclearization or peace treaty and the war declaration or even defense buildup as well. So uh, we'll see. It will be a very different South Korea um, based on who wins. Golly, well, that is a, that's a big uh, a big pronouncement there. Um, any comments on that, James or Chad? Yeah, I, I should stay out of South Korean politics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think um, I would add that yes, of course. I, th- I think the the future of the next five years of inter-Korean relations really uh, hangs in the balance on on uh, on who wins the election. But at the end of the day, does uh, it? The, well, 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 well. Because uh, we have said, haven't we, that, that uh, likely with the pandemic in North Korea, that the next two or three years, they're shut for business anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, as well, the US has such influence over what South Korea can actually push forward. So there are, there are a lot of factors. I think the stars have to align uh, if you're anticipating into Korean cooperation. You know, you have to have a president in South Korea that's for it, that is able to convince uh, whoever is in the White House. And uh, also the, the pandemic has to, has to wrap up as well. 
Final thoughts Just from Jongmin? One last comment. I, I agree that there wouldn't be major progress in inter-Korean relations regardless of mm. who wins, but we will see some difference in what kind of arms buildup we will see on the Korean peninsula depends on who wins because they have very different mm. ideas. Yoon wants more THAAD batteries, which China will hate, and Lee wants nuclear submarines, which I believe that Washington wouldn't be totally on mm. board, so we'll see. Do you think that uh, President Moon, after leaving the Blue House and assuming that he doesn't go to jail, um, uh, would be uh, interested in, in pursuing some kind of citizen diplomacy with North Korea? No, he already said that um, he, does, he wants to stay away from politics after he retires. But when the journalist asked Moon, if, if we send you to North Korea as a special envoy, would you go? Uh, he said that I wouldn't answer that right now. Mm. But if opportunity arises, we will consider that at when that time comes. This was in a recent interview with right, the joint interview. various, yeah, it was Yonhab from South Korea and lots of other news agencies from around the world. That was in February, yep. I believe. Yeah. And it was interesting because that was the final question, right? Mm -hmm. so I, I believe it was, do you want to, uh, you know, do you consider yourself being involved in politics in future? As Jongmin said, no. And then they, you know, but maybe if the North on the North Korea thing, well, if I get an invitation, you know, like could could Moon Jae-in become the next, uh, you know, the, the Jimmy Carter the of Jimmy South Carter Korea? Korea? Yeah, um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if if uh, if Kim Jong Un even sends him a sort of a, a farewell card on his way out of the Blue House, you know, uh, uh, to to cement that friendship, or if he'll continue to snub him. Uh, Chad, final thoughts. Well, just uh, that the Ukraine situation doesn't blow up anymore and that there can be some kind of peaceful outcome. Um, you know, it, some some mornings I'm waking up reading the news and it genuinely just feels like a few chessboard moves away from the start of a world war. And, uh, you know, there'd obviously be a lot of implications for Korea with these, this Cold War setup here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would not like to see that um, tested. Mm. Yeah. Uh, James, final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um, fingers crossed things don't spiral out of control over the next few months. We've got a lot of um, uh, important events in the Korean calendar, yeah. uh, South Korean elections, but also April is going to be a, a huge month. It's the birth of Kim Il-sung, oh, yeah. yes, which, which means, I should put in a plug here, it is a more appropriate time than ever for people listening to our podcast to subscribe to NK News, uh, or if you already have an NK News subscription, Check out our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services, right, James? Because you write for it. Indeed. Specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access today at membership at nknews.org. Don't forget, if you have feedback, questions, guest recommendations, comments, etc., complaints, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Uh, thanks, James, Chad, and Jongwin for coming on the show, and uh, we'll be back again next time. <laughs>